Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we'll be talking to Jordan Sheridan, the on-the-ground reporter who's uh, covering important issues like a hawk. And, uh, you know, massive credit to him, and he doesn't get nearly the recognition he deserves. Uh, there's only a handful of uh, reporters in the country that I really can almost guarantee that whatever I look at that they're doing, I'm going to be interested in it. Yeah. He's one of them. David Schrode is another. Um, who else? Help me out here. Um, oh, you're going to make me use my brain. That's yes. so unfair. Maximilian Alvarez, I think, over at The Real News is doing great work. One of the things that I think is so important is Jordan is actually on the ground, and there are very few people who are doing that. More Perfect Union has been doing some good stuff as another outlet that I would say on the ground, talking to workers, talking to the human beings. Oh, yeah, are, More Perfect Union was actually the one I was thinking of. That, that are involved in the yeah. stories. So, um, But it's it's extremely rare to find people because it takes a lot of resources. You know, yeah. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. And the result for Jordan has been just suppression across the board, making it very difficult for him to be able to continue. That's true. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking to him about what's going on with the mayor race in Buffalo, where you have a Democratic socialist who's this close to victory. And then the Democratic Party decided to stab her in the back and twist it. He's covering that. He's covering the John Deere strike. Uh, he's also covering a unionization effort in Buffalo among Starbucks workers. So he's covering all the important issues. But... Before we dive into that, there's uh, an interesting thing that I'd like to talk to you about, Crystal, and get your feelings on this. So okay. um, Joe Rogan is, in my opinion, he's a, a genuinely decent person. He's a nice guy. He's, at this point, probably the only person in this industry who I would consider a friend. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, let's see. Jank Uger hates my guts because of my <laughs> uh, feelings on the Jimmy Dore situation. Anna Kasparian hates my guts because of the feelings on the Jimmy Dore situation. <laughs> Jimmy Dore hates my guts because of my feelings on uh, the, that same situation. So let's just say I'm a lonely man. And uh, Joe Rogan is actually one of the few who has been, it's been very, just like a normal guy who he's easy to talk to. Yeah. And I think, you know, before we get into specific comments here, which I have disagreements with, right? Um, pretty strong disagreements, I do think he generally gets a bad rap on the left. And I know that you did a monologue about this a while ago, because what happens is anytime Joe Rogan says left-wing stuff, it's never news. Nobody talks about it. This is a guy who's in favor of uh, a living wage, $15 minimum wage. This is a guy who's in favor of universal health care. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who's in favor of ending the wars. And you go down the policy list, and he's correct on all those issues, but it never makes news when he says it. It only seems to make news when he says conservative things, because then the conservatives love him for it, and they give him endless praise, and then the lefties attack him. Right. And so you get this skewed picture that he's, you know, he's on the right. Now, I will say, it's not the case that, like, with Joe, he never talks about the left things, because he does. It's just not covered. Mm -hmm. Because there are some people who like to say, oh, I'm on the left, but 100% of the time that they talk, they're just saying conservative things. And those people are like charlatans and frauds and they're, they found a niche and they're exploiting that. But Joe is definitely not that because he talks about his left-wing positions. Just nobody seems to care or write articles about it when he does and nobody highlights it when he does. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example of this is that infamous clip where he just completely owned Dave Rubin on Rubin's like ridiculous fantasy libertarian views around housing regulations. Obliterated, <laughs> obliterated Dave Rubin. I mean, in a legendary fashion, yeah, that just clip casually. was amazing. Yeah. Wait, I got more. Obliterated Candace Owens yeah. in a way that was legendary. I got more. Obliterated Steven Crowder 
in a way that was legendary. I don't even know about that one. See, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. so people, they, it's a little frustrating because you get the sense yes. that he's this guy that he's not. That he's doctrinaire right wing. When the reality is he has views that are across the spectrum. He's heterodox. I mean, you just pointed out some of the things that are definitely lefty. I mean, the guy said he was going to vote for Bernie Sanders, for God's sake. So he's definitely not some, like, the right wing caricature that the media makes him out as. And I've always thought it was foolish from a lefty perspective as someone who wants to see these values broadly shared that you wouldn't, the right has been very savvy in like claiming him yeah, as right. their own. Like, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you do that when he agrees with you on so much? And there was an interesting moment, the podcast recently that got so much attention with Sanjay Gupta where they talked about the horse deworming thing and whatever. And Joe was completely 100% right about the way that CNN intentionally mischaracterized that. But towards the end, they got into a conversation about Joe's ideology. And Joe said, I'm on the left. And Sanjay was kind of floored by that, that he would even like. Because he bought the caricature. Because he bought the caricature. All he knew was the media's representation of Joe, which is wildly skewed from what his actual views are. So that's all pretext for this conversation. Right. And so and there's also a reason why I wanted to talk about this, too, because in my experience, Joe is genuinely open minded. And if you explain something and it's convincing, he'll be like, hmm, didn't think of it that way. I changed my mind. Yes. So anyway. Um, it's one of his more likable traits, for sure. Like, absolutely. Yeah. So um, he was talking to Bridget Phetasy here, and they were talking about Pete Buttigieg and the paternity leave that he was taking. Now, you're not going to see that in this clip. I wanted the longer clip, but we were having issues with it. I only was able to get the shorter clip where he's talking about this. So we'll get into that more afterwards. The conversation started with Pete Buttigieg, and then now we get to the broader topic of uh, paid paternity leave, and here's what happens. I'm and I'm questioning what who do you believe should pay for something like I that? I don't know. But if I was an employer and I had a guy <laughs> who worked for me, I had a guy who worked for me. who wanted to take three months off because his wife gave birth. I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about, Mike? <laughs> Even Mike, to support his did wife, you give birth to support his wife. While I pay him for free. <laughs> do you understand that this is kind of most people when this happens? If they make enough money, the wife will not work and the father will work. Right. And then the wife takes care of the child. And this is normal. Yeah. And then the dad provides support when he comes home. If you're saying that the man and the woman should both get like three months off, this is a new thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, Isn't it's it? not new in Europe, but it's... we're not in Europe. <laughs> this is better. <laughs> this is America. Okay, so before we get to the specific comments there, the thing that started the conversation was Pete Buttigieg. Now, Pete Buttigieg is the Secretary of Transportation. He's taken off, how long has it been now? Three months, I think. He's taken off three months when he's Secretary of Transportation and we have a supply chain crisis and you got like a thousand ships that are lined up in the port of L.A. Mm -hmm. And so the point that people are making, and again, I actually, I, I'm not sure how directly involved the Secretary of Transportation would be with this issue, but the claim seems to be that, oh, yes, he's actually the one who's, like, mostly in charge. Yeah. And so I he mean, needs I, to be there. Right. I mean, ultimately, I did a monologue on this on Breaking Points. And ultimately where I came, kind of came down is, like, let's stop pretending that Pete Buttigieg would have done anything about a supply chain crisis. Like, okay. You know, I mean, it's it sort of exposes how irrelevant he is to the whole process. But— if you stipulated that he was a critical link and he is the reason why the supply chain has broken down and not enough has been done about it and that this is impacting millions of Americans and you stepped up for this job where you have a responsibility, 
always, of course, to yourself and your your family and your, you know, your new babies and all of that. But you also have a responsibility to the American people that you have taken on here. Right. So I covered this, too. And my takeaway was I think it's a reasonable criticism if because there are let's not pretend like all jobs are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I made the joke to you when we first heard about this. I was like, I'm going to run for president, win, and then on day one be like, I'm going on paternity leave for five months or whatever. And I mean, it's comical, right? Because the the general idea is, yes, there are some positions, some jobs that are so important that it's almost, you don't even need to say it. It's kind of understood that your, your nose better be the grindstone and you better be, you know, working extra hard and you don't really get the same sort of standard things that people with regular jobs would get. Would you disagree with that position? That like there's some jobs that are so important that it's like, don't be silly and just be MIA? Yeah, well, I mean, if again, if we're assuming that the Secretary of Transportation is actually like a key linchpin in all of this, I just think it's very narrow to only recognize the responsibility that of course you have to your family, but not recognize any other responsibilities that you may have. Um, and I think there is a little bit of a liberal inclination in that regard where everything is just about like the individual and self-care. And you see this in our politics where voters are meant to be vessels of fulfilling the ambitions of the politician rather than the politician serving the people. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to say, you know, like, take a little bit of time off, but this is really serious and things are going really poorly right now. And we're in the middle of a crisis. It happens to be that the Department of Transportation randomly is suddenly this critical, you know, agency in the federal government, maybe get back to work and deal with that. Now, all that being said, I think Pete Buttigieg is probably totally irrelevant to the supply chain crisis, whether he's there or not. But the intellectual question is an interesting one. Yeah. And so, but when I first saw the Pete Buttigieg thing, my reaction was that this is actually terrible for paid leave, paid family mm -hmm. leave, paid paternity leave, That's a great period, point. because now it's going to be viewed as this trivial, selfish, narcissistic thing that people exploit, as opposed to what it really is, which is absolutely crucial and vital and important and something that we're lagging behind the rest of the world on. So before you jump in, yeah. I just want to show the, uh, the one of the charts first, guys, throw this up there. This is really important to the conversation. want to do paternity leave you know if you have to like you said before if you're taking care of a sick parent or something like that yeah. mm -hmm. that's something that you could also use it for guys throw it back up there one second because again i just want to run through it real quick um just some uh, if you look at
Testing, testing. There you go. There testing, you go. testing. One, two, three. Okay. All right. So from when I said throw that up there. Yeah. But just don't. This isn't going to be the second time I throw it up there. You can cut it off at before the first time it goes up there. That's the point I'm making for the editing on the back end. Okay. Okay. So you can see here the United States dead last zero days when it comes to government mandated paid leave for new parents. Now that's both maternity leave, paternity leave, family leave in general. Like you mentioned, if there's like a sick parent or something like that, and you need to take care of them. So we have zero days. Now look at the rest of that list. You have Estonia with 86 weeks. Then you have Bulgaria underneath them, Hungary underneath them, Japan underneath them. And you go down the list, like Norway is pretty high up there. Germany is up there. Um, so this is not, this is something that I think he misunderstands because he even mentions like m you paying for it as the employer. No, in most of those countries, the government picks up the Pays tab. It. It's right. not, it's not the employee. That's the whole point of having government mandated policy. paid family leave, right. whether it's maternity leave, paternity leave or what have you, because I mean, it's generally understood, especially if you're a smaller business, you know, you probably can't foot that bill. A lot of them can't foot that bill. So if you have a, a system like that where it comes out of tax funds, well, then everybody wins. And the question you can really think about in the context of the United States is, OK, uh, do you want our tax money going towards 17 new wars like it always seems to go towards? Do you want our tax money going towards endless bailouts of Wall Street to the tune of trillions of dollars with no strings attached? Do you want to go into stupid pork barrel projects that that, you know, don't really give us anything fruitful? Or do you want it going to families? Right. And the funny thing is, this is not really a comment directed at Joe as much as it's directed at people on the right in general. But you do see this right wing backlash to this policy right. when they portray themselves as the pro family people. Yeah. So that was part of what I wanted to say, too. You know, it's interesting on that list. The second or third country up there is Hungary. Which is like, you know, there's this sort of right wing obsession with Hungary and with the policies that are coming out of Hungary. And partly because they're like intensely focused on the family, some of their very xenophobic policies have forced an out migration. And so they're doing all sorts of things to try to encourage their population to have kids and to build families and whatever. But the um, and this, again, is is not directed at Joe. It's directed at people in general on the right who are big critics of this. It doesn't really fit with the whole idea of like family is actually important as a building block and kids need their parents. And like that's actually something that the right has tried to champion with their rhetoric. And then when it comes down to these types of policies, not just with, um, you know, paid family leave, which, by the way, I'm just talking about right wing politicians, because if you pull the country, the p country is overwhelmingly on board with um, paid family leave. But when it comes down to the policies, suddenly it's like, no, get your ass back to work, not just here, but also with the sort of work requirements on any sort of social safety net, where then the value becomes it's better for 
mom or dad to be away from to at work, even if they have kids at home that could benefit from their nurture. So look, I'm a mom. I have three kids. Um, it is good for babies to have their parents around, especially in their very early days. It's good for dads to have the time to be able to bond with baby when baby is new to the world. And it's really good for mom to have support of dad, um, especially like my pregnancies were pretty easy. My births were pretty easy. I didn't suffer from much in the way of postpartum depression, but some people really, really do. And so the idea of like, I think the idea of you have this bucket of paid family leave whether it's for a newborn child, whether it's for caring for a child who is sick or has a disability, whether it's for an elderly parent, whatever happens within your family that you need some time to be able to deal with, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, we have, in my opinion, our values in this country can be really skewed. Like, the only thing that we seem to value is like profit margins. And that means that we only start to value human beings as commodities and what they can bring to the labor force. When in reality, we'd have a much healthier, more balanced and much happier society if we did place some more values in terms of family and community and those sorts of institutions as well, which to go back to your point is fundamentally a conservative value. Newborns require 24 seven care. 24-7. Oftentimes, after the mother gives birth, a lot of births in this country are C-sections, which is a major surgery, which takes a long time to recover from. Yes. The idea that just one person can take care of the baby, given that context, is ludicrous. Right. And, you know, you've talked about one of the other, uh, you know, positions you have, not politically, just generally speaking, is that you think it does take a village and you sort of want the whole family there in order to be involved in raising the kids. Yeah. Because it is such a difficult thing. I also, guys, want to... another thing we don't value in this country whatsoever. I mean, in a lot of countries, you have an extended family that's available to help support you through those times. Most people don't have that in America. I mean, I moved back to be close to my parents because that's something that's really important to me. But I also had the luxury of doing that. Most people don't necessarily have that luxury or their parents are still, you know, working and trying to provide for their own life and pay their own bills. So um, having something minor, like getting a little bit of time that you know is going to be paid where you can be with your baby and start your new family and all of those things, I think it's healthy for society. Guys, throw up the next chart. This is paid vacation time by law. Mm -hmm. U.S., zero. Yeah. Everybody else has at least some, either paid holidays or paid vacation days or both. So what you should sense here is a picture. The United States has zero paid maternity leave days by law, zero paid paternity leave days by law, zero general paid family leave by law, zero paid holidays or vacation days by law. In this country, workers are flat out exploited which actually leads me to my, uh, you know, broader conclusion, which is you and I were obsessed with a poll recently. 15% of people feel, quote, engaged at work. Mm. That means 85% of people don't feel engaged at work. That means 85% of people don't really like their jobs. Yeah. You're telling me when that's the reality that we shouldn't take every opportunity we can to try to give people more time off, mm -hmm. that we shouldn't regulate the marketplace to make life better for everybody by facilitating that. I mean, listen, I support a four-day work week. That would give people a lot more time off every single week. Yeah. So when I look at whether it's paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, paid family leave, paid vacation days, or whatever, I look at all of it and I say, yummy, yummy in my tummy. Give me more of that. that that's, you know, that's as good as it gets. 
it goes to the central question of like, what is the government actually for? And it's supposed to be for serving the interests of the people. It's supposed to be for helping to foster a healthy and happy and fulfilled life where you have that freedom to choose and not just a freedom in an arbitrary sense, but where you actually have the means to make a variety of choices in your life. Right now, for most working class people, I mean, most white collar people, they already get time off. Their company pays for it. Like they already are getting family leave. This mostly applies to blue collar workers and service sector workers. You don't have meaningful choices, even paid sick days. I mean, right. the idea that yeah. we're forcing people to go to work or lose their job when they're sick and they're ma making your food. I mean, this is these are insane decisions, but people are treated like their only value is, you know, at their job earning those wages when in fact to have a healthy society you need to have you know kids who have parents there and who are engaged who have the time who have the energy to care for them those are good things and again it's a conservative value but it's not one that conservative elites actually engage with on a policy level and try to bring to fruition correct so yeah in conclusion I think the reason why Joe ended up going down that path was number one the Pete Buttigieg link into the conversation made it so that it poisoned the well for Joe. Yeah, and he's kind of right about that part. Well, that's the point. It's like, I understand <laughs> that because that was my reaction too. My reaction was, oh, I, I, now Joe wouldn't go this far, but my reaction was, I love paternity leave, but I don't know if Pete Buttigieg should be taking it given this, the supply chain crisis and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, um, well, and they kind of knew that too because he immediately, once it got out that he'd been on this extended paternity leave, they booked him like a million cable news appearances so that he could be like, I'm on top of it. I'm doing things. Here I am. I'm being yeah, Secretary but of Transportation. Yeah, but funny enough, then I read articles that he's going to lean into the fight with Tucker Carlson because Tucker made fun of him for it. And it's like, no, you are the last person who should be the pitch man for this policy because you were the, the most controversial and the most arguable case of people use, taking paternity leave. Again, now people are going to think it's this bougie, upper-class right. concern. And it's it's not. It's not right. at all. Yeah. So I think that poisoned the well for Joe, which sort of led him down this path of the whole idea is ridiculous. But I think the key part that he missed is you're you're not paying for it. The the government would pick up the tab. And again, in this country, look at the stuff we spend money on. It should drive you absolutely insane. Endless subsidies for big oil. It's one of the most profitable industries in the world. And we have to subsidize them with tax dollars. That's insane. insane. Bailouts for Goldman Sachs. Endless war. So I much rather have my money go towards stuff like college, healthcare, paid family leave and things of that nature. Yeah. So, you know, I think given that second part that, you know, the government would pay for it, hopefully that would help move Joe on this issue because this is one of those areas where, like I said, he doesn't get the credit when he's right on a lot of things and he's right on universal healthcare. He's right on $15 minimum wage. He's right on ending the wars. But this is one of those issues where, you know, you hope he, uh, he would evolve because it would be important to have somebody with as big of a profile as he has mm -hmm. to popularize an idea like that. Uh, it, you know, it helps. I mean, the fact of the matter is, though, it's already popular. I mean, it's really popular. Paid leave is um, not only is it one of the most popular policies that was proposed, and no, it was not going to be done by Biden, and we'll transition to that in a moment, but also that was one of the top priorities of people as they were looking on this bill. That's why Democrats routinely run on the issue, because they know that it's a political winner. And then, you know, they get up to the point where they could actually do it, and they decide. They don't want to go in that direction because why? Yeah. What else they suck. Yeah. Um, speaking of that. So Biden announced his framework for reconciliation and the way that this was being reported at first. And we're recording this on Thursday. So there might be some movement Thursday, Friday um, between when this actually drops. 
The way this was initially framed in the media was like, Joe Biden has a deal that everybody's going to be on board with. Hmm. Okay. So it's about $1.75 trillion, which is— Oh, really? I read $1.5. $1.75. Okay. So I must have gotten bad information. Yeah. So, But that's already—I mean, that's— way closer oh, it's already, to Manchin. It's pathetic and I'm still a no vote, but yeah. I'm just saying I thought it was 1.5. Yeah, so it's ever so slightly better than you thought. Um, I guess that's the top line number. It uh, doesn't have paid leave at all. It expands the child tax credit for one year. <laughs> it does, the one policy you can actually hang your hat on in this thing is it does do universal pre-K. Oh, for that, even though that, even that is only six years, right? Um, there's about $500 billion in subsidies for renewable energy. And this is actually critical because it doesn't have any penalties for continued fossil fuel energy generation. Right. Nothing and punitive. There's one. Of, that's one of the sort of key parts of actually moving us forward on climate change. So the climate stuff is like not impressive whatsoever. Medicare expansion. Gone. This is one of, almost gone. This is one of the things that Bernie has said is a must have for him. Um, because it's an issue he genuinely cares about. I mean, if you were out with him on the campaign trail in either election, he would always talk about expanding Medicare, not only Medicare for all, but to include hearing, vision, dental. Well, they've decided they're not going to do the vision and the dental, but they might do the hearing, just the hearing. So every single piece you're seeing a theme here has been completely cut back. They had the audacity in the White House, like their version of this deal and how great it is to say that it represents a historic investment in getting kids to college with less debt. They took out the free community college part and replaced it with some scholarships. Like that's what they're calling this like historic investment in um, in higher education. So it's pretty pathetic all the way around. And then that's before you even get to the tax pieces, which are also fairly pathetic. The one thing in there that is good if it's enforceable is the 15% corporate minimum tax. But that that's not enforceable. A global 15% corporate, corporate minimum, minimum tax. tax is unenforceable. And you're dependent on, yeah, you're dependent on corporations being honest about what their earnings are too. So that one's problematic. The lifting the marginal tax rate, Kirsten Cinema said no to. The billionaire tax, which the way it was written was frankly not all that great either. It only applied to about a thousand people. That man Mansion said he was not in favor of that one. So the wait, let, let's let me explain okay. that a little yeah. bit. Okay, so they were originally saying we're going to raise the top marginal tax rate for people who make four hundred thousand dollars and above. We're going to do that. Mm -hmm. Kirsten Cinema looks at it and goes, "I don't no, want to do that." Nah, not going to do okay. that. Okay, so they go, "All right, well, we'll do the uh, corporate tax increase." Uh, Mansion looks at that and cinema too and goes, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, these are the same people who say the bill has to be paid for. Right. Okay. So what's left? The only thing that's left is raising taxes on working class people or raising taxes on billionaires. Right. Um, now, Mansion goes, this is divisive. I don't want to do it. So you can't do a corporate tax increase because something, <laughs> something competitiveness. You can't raise uh, the top income tax rate because something, something reasons. Uh, and you can't raise taxes on billionaires because divisive. But the bill has to be paid for. Right. So, in other words, what they're saying is, go fuck yourself. We're not in favor of anything. So, I'll give you the rundown of what they actually propose here. Um, 
a surtax of 5% on personal income above 10 million and 3% on income above 25 million, a 15% minimum tax on corporate profits that we were, we were just talking Unenforceable. about. Unenforceable. A 1% tax on stock buybacks, a 50%, one, only 1% tax, a 50% minimum tax on foreign profits of U.S. corporations. So trying to make sure that, you know, corporations That's at least got, pay something. going to have a zillion loopholes. In taxes. So the really obvious things to do were always um, close the carried interest loophole, which is a significant amount of money. And the other thing is the step up basis, which is the gigantic loophole that um, the ultra wealthy use to never pay taxes. They don't pay taxes. The people they pass their assets to don't pay taxes on the assets that, you know, appreciated over the course of their lifetime. I won't get into all of the complicated mechanics of it, but it's a very common tax strategy. It would be super simple and straightforward to just change the step-up basis rule. You would get, you know, a lot of money towards paying for this thing that now sucks anyway. Um, but, yeah, Claire McCaskill lobbied against all these lobbyists, spent a lot of money to make sure those two really super obvious loopholes were not closed and remain available. So let me explain the other pathetic thing about this, too, because this has been weighing on my mind. So uh, Joe Biden and whatever other idiots are in the room with him, and they are idiots, they think, like, we almost got him. We almost got Mansion and Cinema. Do you not understand how many other people are involved in this? Right. Do you not understand that you already axed provisions that for some politicians, it was the main reason why they were voting for it? Kirsten Gillibrand, I know, cares pretty much solely about the paid family leave stuff. Now that's gone. You going to get her vote? There's other people who Patty care about- Murray's another one. Patty Murray on that. Yeah. cares about that issue. Bernie Sanders says, if we don't do the Medicare expansion, I'm not in favor of it. You think Bernie Sanders goes to the Progressive Caucus and says, I'm not in favor of this. You guys should vote no. What do you think they're going to do? You think they're going to listen to the person who they view as basically their de facto leader? And that's the other thing is on what fucking planet do you think the progressives are going to go along with this? And by the way, I'm not even just talking about the Justice Democrats. I'm not even just talking about the squad. There are going to be some regular Congressional Progressive Caucus people who are like, huh? 1.75, and this is what you got? You ran through it. No paid leave, child tax credit only for one year, no Medicare expansion except for hearing, no free community college, no raising taxes on the wealthy in any significant way. The only thing that's in there is universal pre-K and some subsidies for and, renewable and energy. Only for six years, by the way. <laughs> this is toilet paper. This is trash. This is garbage. So congratulations. And by the way, I, I saved the best part for last. They did all this nominally to get Mansion and Cinema on board. Guess what? They're not even They're on board. They're not even on board yet. Oh, we also forgot that uh, the Our, Medicare yeah. prescription drug prices gone. negotiation also gone. Negotiating for is, lower drug prices? Which is the... Who needs that? I bring this up all the time, but I just can't get over it. Democrats have campaigned on this since 2006. Kirsten Cinema campaigned on it. I mean, this is so obvious, and this is another one. It is the most popular policy in the bill. Over 80%. And it is the top priority of Americans, when you give them, here's what's in the bill, what do you prioritize? It's the number one priority of Americans in the bill. Can't do it because of big pharma. That's exactly, that last point is exactly right. Don't ever get it twisted, and the media lies about this. They lie by commission and they lie by omission. The reason why this bill is getting sh 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 shredded, son, is because of corruption. Because of all the big farm money that's it's flooding blatant. in, all of the corporate interests that have lined up against this and bought the politicians. It's Kirsten Cinema once ran on lowering drug prices. 
And then she flipped after she got $920,000 from Big Pharma. Well, what do you know? Well, nobody else is going to call it corruption. We're going to call it corruption because that's exactly what it is. And the sad thing is, in this country, it is legalized bribery because you're allowed to take those campaign contributions. Yeah. You're allowed to take it. So you know what? Their primary constituents are the lobbyists, are the donors, are the special interests. You're an afterthought, which is why this bill is now 37 cents and a Pop-Tart because they don't give a fuck about you. They care about serving their donors. And that is why, you know, people feel so apathetic about Have fun politics. in the midterms. Have fun in the midterms. That'll That's be fun. Exactly right. I mean, I already saw a quote from uh, someone who's been receiving the child tax credit, who's a longtime Democratic voter, who literally told a reporter, I think it was Sam Stein, I don't know why I keep voting for these guys. Because why would you? <laughs> why would you? Why bother? Um, and, you know, I don't like to go down that path of nihilism because I do believe in electoral politics. But what are people supposed to do with the fact that they vote for something over and over and over and over again? It's wildly popular. It has bipartisan, massive bipartisan support. And it's still over decades doesn't happen. Well, let me make just real quick to boost your mood a little bit. Let me make my case against political nihilism, because okay. the first point is obvious, which is that is exactly what they want you to feel. Mm. So you're playing into their game if you feel that and if you give into that. That's the first point is you're giving the establishment exactly what they want if you give into the political nihilism. And the broader the bigger point against it is this. People always make the well, what do you want president to do? President's not a dictator. President can't do all that. That is, okay, it, of course, factually, the president's not a dictator. But the immense power of the president of the United States is not overstated. It's understated. You control all foreign policy. You could end every war like this, period. In fact, we already saw him do it in Afghanistan. Hopefully, he does it in Iraq. He does it in Syria. He ends the shadow war in Africa and stuff like that. Also, through executive orders, listen, this is the politically incorrect truth. The Federalist Society people are going to lose their mind. You could come up with a legal rationale to do anything. Yeah. I mean, there's e there's a provision in Obamacare which would allow Biden to do Medicare for all for the mm -hmm. entire country under the guise of we have a pandemic. This is an emergency. I'm allowed to give everybody that healthcare. That one isn't even Boom. that much of a stretch, I think. But see, that's my yeah. point is that mm -hmm. so there's no reason to ever give up on electoral politics because even if you just get the presidency, one person who's a decent person, who's uncorrupted, who actually cares and knows how to fight could do a lot. We can do a lot. So never, you know, give into the nihilism. That's my point on that. Now, this is my final thing on this is there's only one way to save this bill at this point. There's only one way because if you're, I mean, I told you guys from the beginning what my standards were and I'm a man of my word under $2 trillion. I'm out. I'm out. I'm not interested. Anything under $2 trillion, I said my absolute floor was $2 trillion, and I said you have to look at the details, but I agree with the idea of no climate, no deal, and I agree with the idea if there's any means testing, I'm outski. Yeah. No, not interested in means testing at all. So, okay, well, Kyle, it fails your test. How the hell can we, can we make this work? There's only one way. What the progressives need to do, because let's nominally say, and this is a big if, because we don't even know if he is going to get mansion, if he is going to get cinema, if he is going to hold the people that he's losing because he's stripping out provisions that brought some people in, right? right. But let's, for argument's sake, let's grant him that there is eventually a deal at 1.75 or 1.5, and it's scraps, and it's trash, and basically the only good thing in there is uh, universal pre-K. Mm -hmm. So you get the, uh, the original infrastructure deal, the universal pre-K. What would Biden have to give the left in order to vote for this? My answer is very simple. You better break out that executive order pen, and here's my list of demands. You're going to free every single nonviolent drug offender in the country, a pardon or commutation for every single federal nonviolent drug offender in the country. They're free 
tomorrow. You're going to legalize marijuana effectively by changing the scheduling from Schedule 1 to whatever the lowest scheduling is, which would effectively legalize it. So basically putting into the drug war with the swipe of a pen. And the other thing you're going to do is abolish all student debt right now. If Joe Biden says, hey, Jack, uh, what, what, what do you need to, to give me your vote for this bill? I say, <laughs> this is what you're giving me. And if you're not giving me that, go fuck yourself. But if you do give me that, I'll suck it up and vote for it. Because abolishing the student debt would be gigantic. Uh, legalizing marijuana, freeing... Do you have any idea? There's so many people sitting behind bars whose lives have been ruined because of they awful. smoked weed when they were 18 or some shit. Yeah. You know? Let's so, free uh, Stephen Donziger while we're at it. Yeah, and Assange and Snowden should be able to come back home and all that stuff. Yes. So, But that's my point, is that's the only way you can get me on board. Now, are the progressives smart enough to do it? I don't know. I Honestly, I doubt it. I hope they do something like that. I don't know. But I will say this. I do think they're also pissed... And How bar any extreme circumstance, they're going to vote no. I think you feel more confident about that than I do. Confident about that what? They're, that they're all going to vote no on this. Oh, well, I'll tell you this. They're, they're, they only have a three-vote majority in the House. Mm -hmm. There's no way this passes the House. Yeah. Because right. I don't know what number. I, I have a range in terms of the number of people who are going to vote no. But well, not to mention that I don't you, know the exact number. You already have um, the corporatists who are the problem saying they're not sure they support this either. So I don't know what would give you confidence because the whole thing has been, oh, we're going to tie the infrastructure to build together with this and it's all going to be good. Like, I don't know what would give you confidence as a progressive to go ahead and vote for that infrastructure deal when the problem children over here still haven't even committed. So I are, we know for sure already Ilhan Omar's a no vote because she's already tweeting about go fuck yourself. Uh, Rashida Tlaib's a no vote. She's already tweeting go fuck yourself. Um, that's two right there. You just need like one or two more, and you're gonna you, like you think Cory Bush is gonna go for this? Yeah. Her and Jamal Bowman were just AOC on CNN saying we're not even at the fucking table. This is ridiculous. They're fed up. They're and they're right to be fed up. So then the question is, because they are gonna feed him a heaping pile of dog shit. So all right, progressives, let's see you leverage. Let's see you negotiate, and let's see what you can get out of this. And if you can't get actual demands with the executive orders, then walk away with a smile on your face. Well, because yeah. you didn't do anything this, wrong. You were I right mean, every step of the way. The good thing is he did not make it hard to walk away. That's because, right. I no, mean, there's easy. not that much here that would make you really feel that tug of like, oh, but this is really good for people and really help people. There's not much here that would really be game changing for much of anyone. So walk away. It's not even that hard. Correct. All right. We have coming up Jordan Cheriton. Uh, he is the founder of Status Quo Media. They do phenomenal work, as we were saying, on the ground reporting. He's right now on the ground in Buffalo to cover India Walton's mayoral campaign and also the unionization effort by Starbucks workers. Let's get right to it. Joining us now, the one and only Jordan Cheriton, as we just told you, fantastic on the ground independent journalist. So great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so right now you are in Buffalo, both to cover uh, Indian, India Walton's race for mayor there and also to cover the union drive of Starbucks workers. Let's start with the Walton campaign. For those who haven't followed this closely, if you could just lay out the very bizarre dynamics here and then give us a little bit of your assessment of uh, where the race stands. Yeah, so, you know, typically if a progressive is upset in the primary, um, you know, like a Joe Crowley kind of corporate Democrat goes kind of gracefully into the night as a lobbyist. But here, um, 
Byron Brown, who's been the mayor for 16 years, he lost the primary to India Walton, kind of your dime a dozen corporate Democrat, has sold the city to real estate developers. Um, he instead uh, ha tried to get on uh, as a third party candidate, creating a Buffalo party. Um, that was kind of stuck in uh, the courts. It, it was granted originally that he could be on in the general election as a third party under this Buffalo party, and then it got overturned. So now he is running a write-in uh, campaign. So uh, throughout Buffalo, you see these write-down write down Byron Brown signs. Uh, so he is trying to uh, basically save his seat as mayor as a write-in candidate. Uh, India Walton is the Democratic nominee. Um, she is being carpet bombed uh, in the last week or two uh, with a lot of Republican money coming in because Republicans, uh, the, the, the Democratic machine here is trying to get Republicans to come out to vote against India Walton for Byron Brown. Um, so that's where it stands now. A poll came out uh, two days ago that had Byron Brown up by 18 points. Uh, I looked into the poll. I do think it's probable he's up. I don't think it's by 18 points. The methodology was kind of skewed. Uh, but I really think, uh, you know, for example, Cori Bush was down 18 points a week before her upset uh, of Lacey Clay. So ultimately, it's going to come down to ground game, uh, whether India Walton could get uh, increased turnout in parts of the city that traditionally have had low turnout, particularly the east side of Buffalo, which is pretty impoverished, majority black. Um, and really, if the Democratic machine here can get enough Republicans to come out and vote for Byron Brown. So in terms of the feeling on the ground, what's the sense that you get there? Because I know, like, leading into the 2016 election, even though in most of the polls Hillary was up over Trump, that some people were like, hey, man, I've been to the swing states that matter, and all I see is Trump signs. So, like, is there a sense of enthusiasm on the ground in one direction or the other? There is a lot of enthusiasm for India Walton, but I will say, you know, Byron Brown, the incumbent mayor, uh, he kind of just, he slept on the primary. He, he didn't even try. He had a lot of money that was unspent. And polling shows that, um, you know, a lot of his base just didn't vote because they didn't, they didn't expect, they, they took for granted uh, and thought he would just easily glide to victory. So there is um, more visible to me support uh, for India Walton in terms of, you know, the street signs I've seen, energy, but uh, in terms of, you know, the media coverage, it's, it's a one newspaper town, uh, like a lot of these, uh, and in terms of kind of uh, the zeitgeist here, uh, the media has definitely uh, featured Byron Brown more. There has been a lot, you know, the same playbook focusing on India Walton running as a democratic socialist. Um, most of the Walton people I talked to, volunteers, even some in the campaign, kind of put it as a coin toss, really. Uh, they, you know, it, I, I can't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, lie to you and say, like, I have a strong instinct because I do think it's kind of a coin toss. I also think upsets are hard to poll. Um, most upsets are not, do not show in the polls. It shows that the person who is victorious uh, in an upset was going to lose before. So but, I do think it's a bit upset, of a upset, Jordan. Who's the upset? Because write-in candidates almost never win. Right. Uh, well, no, I mean, in, in a sane democracy where primaries matter, uh, he shouldn't even be running. Right. But yeah. um, I think, I think, you know, for example, Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska, she won uh, as a write-in. She was well-known in Alaska, had the name, name mm. uh, recognition. Same thing with Byron Brown, who has been mayor here for 15, 16 years.
groups. He was, you know, uh, allowed in the debates even as a write-in candidate. Uh, he was given, you know, kind of credence as the, the mayor, so he goes first. They've mm. had two town halls back-to-back. Two nights ago was Byron Brown. He was able to go first because he's mayor, India Walton second. So even though she's the Democratic nominee, it has kind of been treated as the Democratic primary, if that mm. makes sense, in yeah. the general election. Uh, and India Walton, you know, similar, I mean, not as much carpet bombing, carpet bombing in terms of what Nina T Turner experienced, but the uh, Republicans, they're on the ads, they're on the air here, uh, and the media has been, you know, very friendly to Byron Brown. The Murkowski point was devastating, I must say. Uh, yeah, well, that's a much harder, I mean, just on the logistics, that's a much harder name to spell, and it doesn't have a catchy... Uh, Byron catchy... Brown. It's got alliteration in it, too, BB. Right, and that yeah. write down Byron Brown. They have a good rhyme. Write down. Like, who can forget oh. that, you know? God damn it. I mean, but in reality, the dude has been mayor forever. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows And by the way, how's that, how's that going for Buffalo? The dude's right. been mayor forever. How's right. that going, well, it Buffalo? Depends on which end of the income spectrum you're at, doesn't it? Um, well, it's it the third to... uh, third most impoverished city of this size in the country. Oh, right. Jesus. Well, so it seems to me that there's a little bit of a battle going on to define, like, who's the real Democrat here, um, because you have obviously Byron Brown trying to smear India Walton as you know she's a radical and she's going to fire all the police and she's going to fire all the city hall employees and it's going to be terrible and you know these leftists they're they're not one of us. And then on the other hand, um, you know, I know the Walton people have been talking about some of the uh, Republican and right wing, especially moneyed backers of Byron Brown saying, this, like, he's allying with all these Trump people. I think Ron DeSantis did a fundraiser for him. What? So is that is that a lot of the messaging that's going on on the ground or are they talking about other issues in the ads and in what they're putting out to voters there? Uh, Byron Brown has been hitting her with two major things, defund the police and socialism. So it's kind of a similar playbook that we've seen elsewhere. Uh, you know, during the George Floyd um, protest, she was out, you know, she did support kind of defund the police. But as mayor, she obviously is a uh, candidate. She's tweaking her message a little bit to say, yeah, no, I'm talking about reallocating money, uh, you know, police not uh, have, not having police come for mental health calls, having social workers. But that nuance is getting lost because around the country, these defund the police ads are pretty powerful. Uh, Buffalo does have a pretty big crime problem. Uh, so in the polls, uh, that is one of the top issues, crime. So they've been hammering her with defund the police and also this socialism thing. And I know, you know a lot of leftists are not going to like hearing this, but the truth is, uh, I don't really think progressive candidates that are running, you know, as socialists have really had a good answer for that or a good messaging, uh, uh, good message on that and have not come up with ways to kind of um, misdir uh, misdirect away from that and bring it back to the issues. I've seen India Walton in the debates, you know, answer to it, this and that, but it is a powerful thing among, you know, a lot of working class voters who might agree with India Walton or, or the Nina Turners of the world on issues, but are susceptible to that socialism message. You know, Jordan, you're, that's, that's actually the second time that before I asked the question, you answered the question because uh, what I was going to ask you is, do you think that her labeling herself a democratic socialist hurts? And do you think that potentially defund the police hurts? Because take Nina Turner, for example. God, I love her to death. She's probably my favorite politician in the country. There is no doubt that the thing that probably brought her down was the voting for Biden is like eating 
a bowl of shit comment. Half a bowl of shit. Half a bowl of shit. <laughs> Which, by the way, I defended that in my commentary because I think it's completely accurate. The point <laughs> is, Trump's the full bowl of right shit. Yeah. Biden's the half a bowl of shit. But I guess, like, I do sense this broader problem on the left in general that whenever there's the instinct between let's appeal to the mainstream to win versus let's virtue signal to our little click subgroup that the virtue signaling to the sub uh, subgroup always seems to win out and that has devastating consequences so no matter what people feel about the actual policy of defund the police for example i mean a usa today poll from not that long ago 18 percent of the country supports it so it almost doesn't matter what your answer is when you're presented with like well why do you support defunding the police even if you answer it perfectly correct and hit it out of the park People just got the wrong idea about you simply because they had to ask you the question. Do you agree with my right. mini rant here? Yeah, and I've been called establishment and criticized by a lot of you know the online uh, community and the left by saying these things. But the truth is, there are different. Crystal knows this. It's a big difference between national campaigns and local campaigns. So I think a lot of progressives, like for example, people were telling me I was on the ground in Cleveland, so I think I know what happened. That Nina Turner lost because she didn't run scorched earth enough. That she pulled punches against the Democratic Party and against Biden. Well, the truth is, Biden won that district by 35 points. Um, the the previous Congresswoman Marsha Fudge that uh, Nina was running to replace. She was winning primaries by, you know, 40, 50 points and general elections by 60 points. Mm. It's a vote blue no matter who area. Buffalo, for example, Hillary Clinton narrowly beat uh, Bernie Sanders in the primary in 2016, but in the mayor's race in 2017, 15% turnout. So it, Buffalo, for an example, Buffalo here is a working class town. It's got a strong uh, union tradition, but like many of these cities, low voter turnout. The most reliable voter is the 65 and older uh, voters who vote blue no matter who, who are susceptible to this socialism defund the police message. So I think progressives need to decide, and I don't think this is establishment thinking, I just think it's reality on the ground. You have to tweak your message based on where you're running. That doesn't mean, like Nina Turner was running ads on Medicare for all, she wasn't tweaking her policies, but you have to tweak your message to have any chance, if she would have ran bashing Biden, the Democratic Party, she would have lost by 30 instead of six. Yeah. Um, and remember, Cori Bush lost her first race, won the second time. If Nina Turner decided to run again, uh, you know, it wouldn't be in the dead of summer. This was in August uh, in Cleveland. And you move that over to Buffalo. The truth is, you know, uh, India Walton, for example, in an interview with me said, uh, you know, I can't afford to live on Purity Island. People are already calling her a sellout, but the truth is, if she ran scorched earth against the Democrats, um, she would lose. It's actually a good thing for her. I know people are going to be revolted to hear this, that Chuck Schumer endorsed her here, that Kirsten Gillibrand endorsed her here, that the local Democratic Party endorsed her, because that soothes uh, some voters that might be, uh, you know, uh, might be scared off a little bit by the defund, uh, defund uh, socialism when they see kind of the, the social proof of candidates that they tend to support uh, endorsing her. Well, it's interesting, too, because um, India Walton, and I'm sure you saw this, gave an interview to Ross Barkin, and she actually told us something similar when I interviewed her for Breaking Points. She said to Ross, I'm not that woke, 
I've learned a lot over the last year, but I also believe in meeting people where they are. If you're a member of DSA or you're ultra progressive, your friends are going to have the same political leaning. So we use certain terminology when we speak with one another, which is not resonant with average working class folks. Anyone who uses the word defund, you can never make it sound like a positive thing because you haven't taken the time to explain what that actually means. It doesn't mean we're gonna get rid of the entire police force. She also talked about the difference between industry language and lay language. So within, she's a nurse, so she's saying within the medical profession, we have language we use nurse to nurse that makes sense to us, that's sort of jargony, but that's not what we present to the patients. That's not what we present to the lay people and that we need to have a finer understanding of that difference. So what's interesting with India Walton is even though she's being really um, pegged with socialism, pegged with defund, and I think in the um, excitement of victory, may have said a few things on primary night that she kind of wishes she could take back that sounds a little more radical. The reality is she has a very good understanding of how to communicate with regular working class people, does value meeting people where they are, not turning them off with this sort of like self-isolating, um, jargony type language that just doesn't connect with a broad swath of people. But because the broader left movement has sort of been defined in this very isolating way, she's paying the price for a lot of that too, I think. Absolutely. And I think that the truth is from the big picture, you know, 360 degree view, I think a lot of progressives thought, you know, got caught up in Bernie 1620 revolution, uh, that all the polls were showing uh, support for most of the policies Bernie and other progressives uh, were pushing, that they might have thought that if we just knock on enough doors, we could get you know working class people, white, black, brown, to think like us, and that you know there's been 40 years of propaganda, the rise of corporate media, uh, local media is just as bad and a powerful supplement to corporate media I've seen on the ground. So people have been conditioned to kind of um, you know expect less to kind of vote out of survival, particularly black and brown uh, voters. And it's not easy in the course of a primary campaign or a mayor's campaign to pass the revolution onto mostly kind of traditional voters who kind of vote for, you know, name brand candidates that are, uh, you know, on team blue or team red. On a national campaign, I think it's a lot easier to make those connections and maybe shift thinking. I mean, Bernie, for example, a lot of people forget he was actually shifting uh, the gap between older voters. Uh, Biden was losing older voters to him on the issues, Social Security, which David Sirota mm -hmm. and Bernie's campaign was hammering Biden with right. effectively. And for the first time, Bernie was actually uh, cater, you know, bringing over older voters, not on you know revolution, but on the actual issues. So I do think, listen, if India Walton wins here, uh, and I think it's a coin toss at this point, uh, I think it's gonna be very similar to Cory Bush, where you had somebody who was an activist in the community, uh, built a, a base that way, uh, built solidarity and kind of name brand among activists, and was able to bring out voters that might not vote otherwise because they know her. They've seen her on the streets, Black Lives Matter. During the pandemic, she was active um, against some of the policies here. Um, but at the end of the day, I think progressives are going to have to decide, do, do they want to kind of win the internet or, or, or win elections? Well, and to that point, um, Jordan, she would be, if she does win, she'd be the first, by some accountings, sort of out-and-out -out socialist 
running a major city since going back to the sewer socialist in um, Wisconsin, uh, in Milwaukee. And that was, they were very powerful and extraordinarily popular. And the term sewer socialist was initially kind of a slur because these were people who couldn't stop talking about like, oh, we improved the sewer system in our city. But that politically really worked because it wasn't about abstract, philosophical, theoretical things that aren't going to help you like pay the bills at the end of the day. They were about using a more sort of collective driven philosophy to actually deliver for human beings in that city in real time. And it seems to me from speaking with India and from, you know, reading the interviews she's doing and taking in her communications and the way she thinks about this and also the fact that, you know, she has these very working class roots, like she is not distant from these people. She's delivering DoorDash to survive during the campaign and be able to pay her own bills. But it seems like she has that kind of ethos if she is able to survive this well-funded barrage trying to paint her as, you know, someone who is disconnected, who's worried more about these high-level concepts than in actually delivering for real people. Absolutely. And also, like, personal stories matter. I mean, she gave birth at 14 years old. She had twins uh, five years later at, I believe, 19 or 20. I mean, she told me about literally taking her newborn twins on the bus with oxygen attached to their medical appointments. This is a woman who has had to survive every step of the way, even with children in her teens, um, you know, obviously not, you know, grew up poor on the east side, uh, you know, worked hard enough to become a registered nurse. So I think, you know, I don't want to speak for her, but what she was telling me is like, I don't have the privilege to, to be pure or, or I don't have this privilege to like run with the notion of, well, I'd rather run pure and lose, you know, she wants to win. And she was talking about, you know, for all these high-minded concepts, you really can't fight for these things if we're not, if we don't have the power. And I think that's important because um, we need wins on the board. And also this is different because this would be an executive position, right? So I think what you're talking about, this would be the first, you know, however you want to define socialism, uh, socialist in an executive position like this in, in many decades, I think that would help the left because get W's on the board, then if she were actually to get concrete successes as a socialist, it kind of de, you know, Halloween, kind of de-boogeymans that term. Okay. If you actually have elected socialists in there, you know, uh, reopening the closed y the closed youth, youth centers, uh, filling the potholes in the street. Uh, so I think it would be really good for the left and kind of to de-boogeyman de this term socialism. Yeah, and it's easier to get those wins uh as an executive versus if you're a legislator, in my opinion, because you do have more power in that position. Mm. Um, I think the thing that bothers me most to this conversation that we're having about strategy is that there's a misinterpretation on behalf of some and a willful misinterpretation on behalf of others uh, that strategic differences somehow equal policy differences. And that's not the case at all. You know, we could be 100% in alignment on the policy stuff, but when we talk about hey, it's a, it would have been a smarter thing for Bernie to call himself a social democrat as opposed to a democratic socialist. When you say things like that, um, you know, people think what you're saying is, let's concede on, the pol on a bunch of the policies. And that's not what we're saying at all. It's about messaging. It's about what you put front and center. And another example of that would be like, if I was running as a democrat in West Virginia trying to unseat Joe Manchin in a primary, 
which is very difficult. But what you do is you put the economic stuff front and center, and I wouldn't touch abortion or guns with a 10-foot pole, but that doesn't mean that if a vote comes up on guns or abortion, that I don't do the right thing. It's just you don't brag about the thing that's unpopular. But anyway, yet again, that's another mini rant. I want to get to um, uh, what's going on with the Starbucks union, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happening on the ground in Buffalo with that. Yeah, so this is exciting. I interviewed about four or five workers yesterday. And I really think, you know, for good reason, the strikes have really gotten a lot of attention. But these union drives, Amazon, which I've covered in Staten Island, now Starbucks, remember, these strikes can only really happen because they have unions. Most of these strikes are happening around the country because they have built-in unions. So the fact that these major corporations, uh, Amazon, Starbucks, uh, to some lesser-known uh, companies have workers trying to form a union, super important to you know building up more strikes and more organizing but these starbucks workers you know it's a little different than amazon for example because people know with amazon you know people pissing in bottles and pooping in vans and i've i've talked to workers who have been carted off on stretchers due to the heat so it's not like that bad at starbucks in terms of working conditions but it still is, you know, tr during a pandemic, being asked to pump out like 10 frappuccinos in five minutes, um, you know, trying to uh, cut wages, trying to stagger shifts uh, to deprive people of overtime, um, you know, basically a top-down management style where workers have absolutely no say in conditions, in hours. And these Starbucks workers in Buffalo, um, I think it was kind of a cumulative effect. This was going on for years before, the pandemic but then during the pandemic you know at the end of the day it's kind of from a psychology point of view a real slap in the face and demoralizing if you are risking your life because uh, uh, you know people were more demand for starbucks uber eats uh, delivery that kind of thing uh, and then you see you know um, the ceo uh, get a 20 million dollar bonus uh, then you see starbucks profits not just like surviving during the pandemic but kind of like many companies, record profits. So these workers are, are basically saying, you know what, Buffalo has a strong labor tradition uh, and, and we're gonna go for it. And Starbucks, you know, obviously a lot of people focused on Amazon and their real disgusting union busting in Bessemer as well as uh, what they're doing in Staten Island. This is a little different because they have literally sent the heavy guns into Buffalo. Like I had workers telling me there are more Starbucks executives here than workers in most of the stores. Even, even Howard Schultz, you know, who was chairman and is now chairman emer emeritus or some BS position, but he's still very active. He came in. Uh, the senior, the uh, CEO of North America uh, has come in sweeping floors. And another thing they're doing is just flooding these stores with new workers that aren't really needed to basically try and interrupt the communication and kind of sow chaos between the workers who are for the union in those specific locations. So Starbucks is throwing everything but, you, but the kitchen sink to kind of sow chaos at these uh, at these uh, various locations that are trying to unionize and stop it. And of course, they're holding the listening sessions and all that propaganda too. Quote unquote listening sessions, which by the way would be illegal under the PRO Act. The hilarious thing to me too, is they're pretending like this is all normal, like totally normal that Howard Schultz and half of the Starbucks executive team is they just happen to be in Buffalo. They just happen to want to stop by and like sweep the floors and hang out with the workers and have quote unquote listening sessions. They won't even cop to the fact that this has to do with the union drive, which I just find to be so incredible. Like we're not idiots. It's very obvious what's going on here. 
But to your point, it's from what I've seen, there's a number of tactics. There's the, you know, having the executives there is extremely intimidating. It means you don't have a chance to talk to your fellow workers about what's going on. Um, and sends a message, too, that, like, we're watching you and watching very carefully what the result of this union is. If you like your job here, you may want to consider that. Um, they're flooding them with new workers, which one of the challenges with the service industry always for unionizing is you have a very transient workforce. So it takes a lot of time to, you know, build knowledge and build that solidarity and come up with a plan and all of that. So if you're constantly bringing in new workers, you're sort of constantly starting from ground zero in terms of having that conversation and, and building that trust and with executives, you know, looking over your shoulder. They've closed a couple stores for renovations altogether. So a couple shops are just totally shut down. And then this is another common tactic. They've, um, they've asked for the for the unit, the bargaining unit, to be all of the Starbucks stores in Buffalo. So again, you're adding more people in. They wanted to, to first unionize just a few of the stores. Starbucks is saying, no, no, we have to, if you're gonna do this vote, it's gonna be with everyone. So again, that expands the number of people that you have to reach out to, that you have to organize, that you have to educate and all of that. Um, so it seems like the deck is pretty heavily stacked against the Starbucks workers at this point. Is that your sense as well, Jordan, or do you think that they've got a shot at this thing? Yeah, and one thing also was that the first uh, Starbucks that was really all in with everybody, they basically made into a training center and, yeah. then, and then are trying to close. So, yeah, uh, yeah, my sense is essentially they are trying to, A, divide uh, the workers that already are support are for it by separating them. Another thing that's going on, frankly, is I think they're trying to get a lot of people to quit which I spoke with some workers yesterday, which a lot of workers are starting to thinking about quitting because their hours have been cut, specifically the workers that are for the union. Another, I mean, I talked to uh, two workers yesterday. Uh, this, you know, this might be more of an isolated thing, but because Starbucks is flooding these, um, each locations with more people, they're packed like sardines. I mean, COVID still is a thing. So two of the workers that were at this location, they told me they were incredibly careful. They both kind of have immune things. So outside of work, they weren't actually, uh, you know, going out and spending a lot of time with people for, for precautions for COVID. They both got COVID uh, because Starbucks added like seven to 10 new workers there. Uh, wow. There was not any space between them. And after they met New York state uh, guidelines for isolation, uh, not symptomatic, this and that, Starbucks is making excuses not to let them come back. So oh, there's geez. a lot of kind of, you know, obviously I don't, I can't say for sure they got it from Starbucks, but they think they did. But I think, I think it is going to be an uphill climb here because of what they're doing, because they have expanded this to, it has to be in every store. But I also think that um, New York is a stronger union town than let's say Bessemer, Alabama. This mm. also goes for the Amazon workers that are trying to unionize in Staten Island. New York's uh, union percentage is 22%. Overall, kind of seems low, but that's one of the highest in the country. Uh, I do know that these Starbucks is kind of, the workers are kind of writing down their list uh, in anticipation for just a giant uh, onslaught of claims to the National Labor Relations Board, because there are mm. things going on that are illegal. Uh, so I think it's gonna be a long slog uh, it's not like Staten Island, for example, where they're just outside that one warehouse in a tent uh, or, you know, talking to workers coming in and out all day. It took them months just to get to the point where they could file for a union election. This is many more than just one or two warehouses. This is a lot of different locations and that added monkey wrench, which is 
than flooding the zone with new workers. I think it's possible, but I do think it's going to be a long slog. So um, I know you were also on the ground at the John Deere protest. We had, um, or excuse me, John Deere strike. Uh, we had Jonah Furman on from Labor Notes. He's a labor reporter. He's been following that very closely as well. He was on last week on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, tell me, so just to catch everybody up real quick, John Deere made over, I believe, $5 billion in profits, and the workers are getting squeezed, and so they finally had enough. Uh, there's a negotiation going on right now. The UAW had, uh, the leadership of the UAW had brought back, I think it's eight different proposals to the, to the members, and they were totally absurd, so they actually voted them down, which is a big deal, because usually... Yeah, usually if if leadership backs a contract proposal, usually the rank and file typically will right. vote for it. And not only did they not vote for it, it was like 90% were like, no, yeah, not, not right. a Right, so it's questionable what's going on up there in the leadership of the UAW, because obviously the, the actual rank and file are not happy with it, and there should be a more, you know, direct vote in, for a union as opposed to having this weird archaic process sort of like the dnc to figure out who gets on top mm -hmm. um but the question i have for you being on the ground there is um what's the morale like what's going on how are people feeling uh talk a little bit about your firsthand experience yeah i think it goes to the broader thing we were talking about which is the collective like doomerism on the left online i want to tell people there's actually hope there's actual hope out there. People are coming together, which has invigorated me because I've seen a lot of misery um, and kind of nihilism out there. Uh, really, what I'm getting, I went to three or four different locations and picket lines, is really kind of workers finally realizing, like, what else do we have to lose? They're basically stripping down our pay, our benefits, our pensions, like to the point of a, of a skeleton. Uh, and they are really uh, pissed off, particularly going back to the pandemic. John Deere stayed open. They were in there risking their lives. Uh, they were working extra hours uh, in a lot of cases. In general, even before the pandemic, 10-hour days, three Saturdays out of, a, out of a month, a lot of these workers have worked. Uh, and John May, the CEO, 160% increase he got oh, in his salary Jesus during Christ. the pandemic. They're projected John Deere to make $6 billion this year, which will be a record. So I think workers, it's twofold. One, which Crystal and you just mentioned, which is there's kind of a, been a boiling and a bottling up of frustration, which is union leadership in general. The fact that a lot of these union leadership, let's just kind of compare it to the Democratic Party, has just been very willing to kind of take what they could get. Um, that union leadership, it's this convoluted process where uh, you don't have direct elections for union leadership, but it's a delegate system, kind of like the DNC, like you said. So it's kind of twofold where they COVID and kind of the 40 year uh, theft of their wages and benefits before that uh, tipped over on top of frustration with the union, which they think has kind of frankly just made too many concessions, kind of sold, tried to sell rump roast as like gold and they're fed up. And I got to tell you, uh, a lot of these picket lines are, are they're rowdy in a good way. Like they are really dug in for the long haul um, and there's a camaraderie. And something I'm seeing, which is very important if you're gonna strike and be effective, is community buy-in. I mean, most of these picket lines in these various cities, you, there is not, very few cars go by without honking and support. You have local, mm. uh, fat, you have local restaurants and grocery stores donating food, 
uh, water. I even talked to uh, workers who there's kind of a system for childcare. You know, if if workers are going to be out there, you know, longer than their shift, uh, having people to babysit if you have young children, this and that. So there's a real uh, community buy-in. There's you know mutual aid, donations, that kind of thing. Uh, so I think this is really important, and I think, listen, I'm not going to lie and say, hey, we'll have a general strike tomorrow, but for uh, organized labor that's kind of been in hibernation for the last couple decades, uh, it's really, really exciting what's going on with John Deere and all these other strikes. Yeah, real quick before you jump in, Crystal. Um, so there's polling to back up exactly what you're saying about how virtually everybody seems to be supporting the union. So it's 87% of Democrats are supporting the current wave of strikes. Uh, Seventy-two percent of independents and even sixty percent of Republicans are in support of the current wave of strikes. Is yeah. that something? Yeah, which matches with um, support for unions in general. Yeah, being at its highest level since like 1965 or something like that. Um, there is definitely a shift happening here, and so this is what I keep telling our audience too: is like the news from D.C. is extremely depressing, like extremely depressing. Um, but there, this is not just a silver lining, what we're seeing with workers, not just with the strikes, but also with the union drives, also with the number of workers who are willing to say, screw you to their bosses and quit and go find something else. Like, this is a shift in labor that we haven't seen in generations where workers actually feel like they have a little bit of power and leverage right now. That is incredible to see, especially if you have the politics that we all do, believing in the power of a multiracial working class. Like, here it is, you know, living, breathing on the ground in these industrial Midwestern states and actually in places across the country. And it's not partisan. It's, you know, broad support from the public uh, writ large. So it is truly exciting to see. And with regard to John Deere, the other thing, uh, Jordan, that's been interesting to follow is the company's tactic to break the strike is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. They decided to take some of their like office worker desk jockey types um, and send them onto the factory floor. And with, 12 of them have died. With little, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No one that's that we know of has exaggeration. been hurt. So um, that's good. We don't want anyone getting hurt here, but sent them in to fill in as scabs. And immediately once this happens, there's ambulances rushing to the scene. Again, as far as we know, no one's seriously hurt. Somebody wrecked a tractor on day one. Now, uh, this is reporting from Ken Klippenstein. Apparently, they're keeping all of their injury reports and, like, accident reports. They're not writing them down. They're keeping them confidential so that we don't find out what's happening here. But um, what have you heard from what have you heard from workers on the ground about how they feel about the white-collar workers being used that way? Um, what have you heard in terms of have you gotten any insight into additional problems filling in with this workforce that has no clue what they're doing and really shouldn't be put in this position to start with? It's just frankly, it's not safe. Yeah, well, I think it goes to kind of this tight labor market thing, which is uh, benefiting the workers, because typically a lot of these workers, uh, not just John Deere workers I spoke with, but workers over the years, they haven't acted because they kind of knew that they could just be easily replaced. But that's not as much the case right now because John Deere can't, you know, just replace 10,000 people. I mean, they could try with with these kind of pencil pushers and paper pushers and crash a lot of tractors. So the workers feel uh, kind of uh, validated because obviously it's showing, yeah, maybe, you know, they know what they're doing and are very skilled if people are crashing tractors on day one. Uh, the other thing also is just although John Deere is negotiating with the uh, local uh, UAW there and the national UAW, uh, you know, different 
different factories and stuff, uh, leadership have kind of made threats towards workers. You know, yeah, we will cut your health care off at this date if, if, if you don't stop, even though that doesn't seem to be the, you know, position of John Deere, the company, local management in different places. There's been mixed messages on that, which can spook uh, workers. But overall, I think the workers are dug in because they kind of know, yeah, John Deere is not going to be able to replace them. Uh, and once John Deere's uh, profits start dipping, uh, they are going to be uh, kind of, uh, they're not going to be in the mansion position. The workers are, are in the mansion cinema position and what should be the Bernie position, by the way, uh, of, hey, we could hold out because you got no, you got no one else to replace us. Thus, uh, your profits are not going to uh, continue to soar. So uh, I want to change gears a little bit here, Jordan, to my favorite topic, YouTube suppression. Um, <laughs> oh, thank, thank God. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I, I've always been whining about this for a long time, um, and I, I do think I get it pretty bad, but my go-to example of somebody who has it actually worse than I do is you. I think you are literally example number one for suppression of an important voice on the left. So let me give everybody a little bit of a rundown here real quick. Uh, th and this is just relatively recently, too. So right now you're on the ground in Buffalo covering the India Walton race, Democratic Socialist, who might become mayor. Um, you're also covering the Starbucks union thing. You um, uh, covered Amazon organizing in Staten Island. You were on the ground at the John Deere protest. You, of course, have been over uh, all over the uh, Flint water crisis like nobody's business. Um, and I covered some of your stuff when uh, you were covering directly the foreclosure crisis. You were going to talk to people who were supposed to get uh, some money, and they didn't. And you were, like, the only person who was on top of that. And, of course, you were on the ground on January 6th at the Capitol when all of it went down. And the best example that YouTube is a colossal mess and they censor and they deplatform and they derank and they have a hierarchy as to who's acceptable and who's not is that you had footage on the ground historic footage some might say you posted it on your channel you also licensed it to all the major networks and then what happened is youtube banned your footage on your channel pulled it down and allowed cnn and wh whichever other big networks to keep it up. And I happen to know, and because you talk about this all the time as well, that when you go live, people don't get notifications, even if they click the notification bell. Um, you know, your stuff is sort of hidden in the algorithm, deranked, not recommended to new people. Um, how frustrating has it been knowing that you're putting out stuff that's straight fire? You are covering the substantive issues better than almost anybody. And YouTube has put you in the same category as some alt-right open Hitler lover who's, who's doing, you know, Nazi salutes on screen and reading Mein Kampf. Yeah. It's extremely frustrating. Uh, it's extremely anxiety-inducing because the truth is, I mean, Crystal worked at MSNBC. This shit's really expensive, and we don't take corporate money. So at a certain point... I mean, I have anxiety. How how are we going to keep doing this if I'm going live to 200 people on the road, yet spending six, seven thousand dollars per trip? Uh, you know, these trips to to go on. The, I mean, we're we're going to be on the road for two weeks right now, uh, between John Deere, Buffalo, and all this. 
that costs a lot of money. So if you're not reaching a new audience or you're not even able to reach your existing audience because they don't know you're alive or they don't see your videos, how can you operate just dollars and cents? Uh, the other thing that's frustrating is, you know, as much as I'm suffering and status quo suffers by being hidden, because that's what's going on, these communities suffer. And, and, you know, Flint suffers and candidates who are not getting any coverage or get getting fair coverage uh, by the corporate media, they're getting buried too. Um, and it's, it's maddening because, you know, when I was at the Young Turks, for example, this was pre-YouTube uh, adpocalypse and rigging their algorithm. I mean, I grew the fastest channel they ever had at that point, not because I'm so special, but because I was covering these types of things and it was on a fair playing field. So I know for a fact, I don't need market research. I, I've done it. There's a huge hunger for on the ground reporting on, you know, the controlled demolition of the working class, corruption, environmental genocide, water, con water contamination, the list goes on, Black Lives Matter. But if people don't see it, it's not just YouTube, by the way. Twitter has been uh, suppress suppressing me for years. Um, if people don't see it, then how, how, not only how does status quo thrive or even exist, but how do you wake more people up? I mean, I always use my parents as an example. God bless them. They voted for Trump. Uh, I love them, but whatever. Uh, but when I show them the stuff I'm doing, their first reaction is, how come, how come this isn't on CNN? How come no one else is talking about this? Because they can't believe it, what they're seeing. Uh, and that's, a, that's the typical reaction I get when people could actually see their reporting. But if you can't see it, then it's very difficult. And I think, honestly, at the end of the day, YouTube, these tech platforms, they are waging an information war. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the, one of the lone outlets that's actually doing like on the ground independent reporting on these stories, like putting a face to these people, giving them a voice, that that channel is so badly suppressed and hidden. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, my partner, Jen and I, we've tried everything uh, under the kitchen sink to, to get it out more, but we're kind of being suppressed at every point. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, we can't even purchase ads. We can't even give YouTube money to show our content more visibly because they call it political advertising. So wow. it's it's been tough, it's been tough. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up because honestly, if we, if we succeed, if we fail, if we're able to be seen and people just don't like it, I could live with that. But if we fail because there's literally a, a rigged algorithm that's hiding us, it's it's a tough pill to swallow. It, it just uh, just to give everybody an idea here, and this now I'm talking about my channel, and you know I honestly think now I'm just guessing and I'm speculating, but I think there's actually a hierarchy and there are different levels of how much they promote your stuff. I don't think it's just you're you're on the good algorithm or the bad algorithm. I think there's like tier A, Radiation. tier B, tier C, mm -hmm. yeah, and it goes all the way down. So. Uh, just to give everybody a sense of how bad it is, okay? Uh, again, again, this is me. As soon as YouTube announced their new rule to prioritize authoritative news sources, which, by the way... Like Fox, like Fox News, by the exactly. way. Exactly. Right. Uh -huh. It doesn't mean actually authoritative. It means the same corporate douchebags who've been wrong about virtually everything. They were wrong on Iraq. They were wrong on Syria. They were wrong on Russiagate. I can see here and go down a whole list of things they got wildly wrong. So they, as soon as they announced that... Secular Talk saw a drop in new subs of 88%. Wow. Now, Jesus. people might say, well, you know, hey, that could just happen. You know, it, what happens on a bad month? Wrong. We know because I've, I've been on YouTube since 2012, 2013, doing it full time. Once your channel hits a certain size, you have exponential growth. 
because the more people watch your videos, the more they recommend it to new people. So a bad month is like a gain of, you know, 15%, not a loss of 88%. That's just Jeez. insane. And actually, you have now gotten a little taste of this as well. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a direct apples to apples comparison because we went directly from being under the Hill corporate umbrella to out on our own and look i want to say now people can get it by podcast and i think some people listen to uh, the podcast numbers have been you know really strong and really big and so i think some people who used to watch on youtube now watch on the podcast but there is zero doubt that um you know we'll do the same exact story same type of headline it's me and Sagar, we're the same people same human beings the show still looks great and all of that but it just does not get recommended in the way that it used to when we were at the Hill. And so, um, you know, Jordan, part of why what you do is so incredibly important is because I'm struggling. So uh, the real news, they do on the ground reporting, but you're one of the only outlets that not only does original journalism, but on the ground reporting absolutely vital bringing cameras into these communities that normally are completely invisible and so that's why it's you know the work you're doing is such an important role in the ecosystem why it's such a loss for all of us as you were pointing out when that work is suppressed what have you done from a business perspective and how can people support the work that you're doing since lord knows we can't rely on any of the social media platforms whatsoever, they're just gonna continue to screw over independent voices more and more. Absolutely, and I appreciate it. I mean, I have I, I will not uh, shy away. I've had to beg for exposure at this point, so I appreciate you guys. And by the way, Kyle, uh, just so you know, the two times Kyle Kalinske uh, did a video just highlighting some of our reporting, all of a sudden I get 1,500 to 2,000 new subscribers and comments start flooding in. Jordan, That's you're great. back. From old mm, young wow. Turks, you old young Turks viewers wow. who just saw me for the first time. We've been doing this for three years. Wow. Uh, people, you know, first and foremost, we're on YouTube. Status coup, C O U P. Uh, subscribe, I guess. Click the bell for all notifications. If it, I don't know if it works, but uh, so that's number one. Uh, we're trying to get around YouTube suppression by just building up our text list. So we text people when we're live. So that's statuscoup.com/text. And uh, yeah, most importantly, most importantly, um, you know, if, if you got five bucks a month, it, it, it would go towards this on the ground reporting. You, you know, progressives don't you don't have to agree with my commentary when I'm not on the road 24 seven to support the on the ground reporting, because honestly, it's very expensive. Hotels, flights, rent to cars, equipment, uh, my myself, my partner, Jen, our producer, Colin, uh, our overhead per month ranges between 10 to 15 grand. Uh, and that's like, I'm making 50 grand less than I made at the Young Turks. This is this is my purpose. It's not to make money. So um, statuscoup.com slash join. Uh, you can become a member for as low as $5 a month. And um, I think whether it's status coup or others, you know, I think we we bash corporate media, but you, you can't even begin to counter that echo chamber if you're not actually showing what's happening on the ground. So statuscoup.com slash join. Uh, and if you can't support financially, just subscribe to the YouTube. Uh, statuscoup.com slash text to know when we're live. And we're also on sub Substack at uh, status Substack. Yeah, that's a that's a good idea to be on Substack as well, to just try to get the word out there as much as possible. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pundit. You know, I'm a commentator. I 
read stuff I find interesting in the news, I cover it, and then I give my opinion. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit you're doing something that's more important than what I'm doing. You know, anybody can give their opinion on some shit. That's easy. You know, you're the one who's actually on the ground gathering the information to share it, which then allows loud mouths like me to go out there and be like, here's what I think about this. Mm -hmm. But I can't do that if I don't have information I can rely on and trust and know that it's coming at me with no filter. That's right. Exactly. So anyway, that's well, it all it all works. It all works together. I mean, you don't have to go out you know, to be important or to add value. I mean, you cover things very few people don't. I'm not a foreign policy expert. I get most of my knowledge from you, Kyle. So I think whether it's commentator, reporting, it's all important. But yeah, I mean, if you want to fight this information war, we have to actually fund actual on-the-ground reporting. Yes. So um, yeah, if you can support us, status coup, uh, status coup.com slash join. And, and thank you guys. Of course. Um, thank you, Jordan. You got any trips, uh, reporting trips coming up we should know about? Well, my wife gets angry with me if I'm gone uh, beyond two weeks, so I'll be going home uh, after this trip. But uh, outside of that, uh, we do have another Flint bomb coming, which uh, we're going on eight years without clean water. So I've been wow. working on an investigative story there. That's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah. So we'll have a, an investigation about Flint coming out by the end of this year. And uh, I do hope uh, to get back out there. There's a lot of other pipelines going on outside of line three that people don't know about that uh, to cover those protests. Fantastic. Jordan, thank you for your work. Thank you for your time today. We are so incredibly grateful. And you guys, if you're able, go out and support the work that Jordan is doing at Status Quo because it is an essential, vital part of the ecosystem. Very few other outlets ultimately do it. And so if you care about these real stories without a filter, people who are being screwed all across the country, um, Jordan is the guy and Status Quo is the place to make sure you're getting that information. Jordan, thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. So there is Jordan Chariton. Um Yeah, I, uh, you know, I mean, we just talked to him about this in detail, but I feel terrible at the fact he's doing like real work and getting hammered. Yeah. By YouTube, and as you know, he says it's expensive to travel. Yeah, it's expensive to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, flight or the rental car and the hotel rooms is one thing. But then you also when you're recording video, you have to have equipment and you have to be able to edit on the road and all of those things like that really adds up. And I know Jordan runs a very lean operation like he's not getting paid a huge salary or anything. And um, but it just costs to be on the road. So incredibly worthy of support and to the point of like, I mean, YouTube is just a disaster now. We were just looking. One of my videos. Oh, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I did uh, my monologue for Thursday on Breaking Points was about the fact that um, they're going after, you know, Assange right now this week, trying to extradite him to the U.S. to face a 175 year sentence for the crime of doing journalism. Stephen Donziger reported to federal prison this week, which is completely unconscionable for the crime of actually trying to hold big oil to account. So I did a monologue about that. I didn't curse. I didn't say anything that wasn't entirely factual based on the case. And when people click on it, they're getting a warning that it might be inappropriate or offensive. And it's also very clearly being, it's demonetized, of course. Absolutely. And it's very clearly being suppressed in the algorithm too, not being recommended to people. And so you're just, you know, you're completely at their whim. Whatever they decide is, you know, totally A-OK. It's all their quote unquote authoritative sources. It's ridiculous. Listen, 
I don't want to bitch too much. We're not the biggest victims in the world. But I will say, every single time I cover a very substantive story that's on a controversial topic, it's demonetized. You got demonetized on some reconciliation video that, recently. Yes, that did happen. That's ridiculous. It, listen, <laughs> I one of the things I pride myself on covering and covering well and covering in a thorough fashion is foreign policy. You cannot talk about Israel. You cannot talk about Saudi Arabia. Yeah. You cannot talk about U.S. imperialism. You cannot talk about any of these substantive issues without getting demonetized and deranked in the algorithm and the videos being recommended even less than they are. And, of course, my videos are not recommended to new people ever. So, you know, you look at that and you go, to your point, because you've made this point before, who the hell is going to, number one, start up now and make it. Right. And, number two, start up now and make it and talk about important issues. Right. If you are... At every turn, there's a disincentive for you to talk about new issues. The only reason I do it is because I'm the most uh, stubborn, pig-headed, bull-headed motherfucker on the planet where once I make my mind up on some shit, I'm doing it. And so I, way back in 2012, I knew foreign policy is one of my beats. It's one of the things I talk about. And so I'm not just going to not do it because YouTube is punishing me. But I know every time I do it, it's, you know, it's something that is going to be a loss. Yeah. I could cover some bullshit and get double the views but I make a decision as a matter of principle. No, I'm going to cover the important thing because the important thing, it's inherently valuable to cover it, even if it gets suppressed, and even if only 17 people watch the video. Well, and it's not just getting suppressed, it's getting demonetized. Yeah, so, I mean, no, of look, course. But listen, that's why I have a Patreon, and right. that's why people support my yeah, show Patreon. And that's, that's why, why we, we have a substack. That's why we set up the business that we did for, for Breaking Crystal Point. And friends and for Crystal Kyle and Friends, And for Crystal Friends, so that we weren't relying on the whims of these algorithms. But you see the loss. When you have someone like Jordan, I mean, he says open to, openly to us, like, I don't know if I can persist. I don't know that this is sustainable because I'm just getting suppressed at every turn and it's expensive to do this. And I just don't know if I can make it. That would be a tremendous loss because there are so few reporters who are actually covering these stories and willing to go on the ground and willing to do that travel and willing to bring those stories to us so we can see the human beings who are impacted by what's going on from the ground level, that would be a massive loss you know, if he's unable to persist because of these tech giants. You know, one of the things he did that I absolutely loved, he went and he spoke directly to homeless people. Yeah. And he interviewed them. And he asked them, how'd you get here? What's going on? And uh, I remember I covered a segment because one of the people made a, made a bunch of phenomenal points and, um, you know, was somebody who was a construction worker and he was homeless. And, you know, CNN's not talking to that guy. Right. The people who should be doing the real news are not talking money, to that guy. All the money in the world you know, to do those sorts of things. They're not doing they're it. They're busy tripling down on saying Rogan took horse dewormer, you know? <laughs> right. So it, it, Literally. it's just, it's pathetic and um, it's a shame because the promise of independent new media early on, the promise of YouTube early on, the promise of all the social media giants early on was we are the alternative to the nonsense. You come right. here for the freedoms. You could say what you want, and you can build an organic audience that way. Um, and then over time, they got too big. They got a little too powerful. And then what happened is when there were instances of something questionable happening, like, for example, a Nestle ad running on, like, a white nationalist channel, mm -hmm. what happened is corporate media exploited that to their own benefit. Yes. And they ran a 1,000 hit pieces on it. Oh, is YouTube too dangerous for your children to ever be on? Should nobody use YouTube anymore? Look at the things that people are getting brainwashed by going to these things. Look at what happens. They go down the rabbit hole and they never come back. And what, what was their solution? It's okay, YouTube. 
we might stop the hit pieces, just prioritize us. Yep. So CNN and MSNBC and all these shitty outlets, I, sh I shit you not, it's weird I said shit twice, uh, but they used to get like 300 views a video, 1,000 views a video. This is back when I was still doing Secular Talk early on in like 2013, mm -hmm. 2014. They would post a video and get Dickie McGeezacks for numbers. They'd get nothing. And then guess what? They started growing as soon as YouTube decided, well, we should just prioritize this in the realm of news and politics. Yeah, and then it just becomes like everything else. I mean, I think Sagar and I snuck in under the radar because we were under the Hill corporate With umbrella. the Hill you did, yes. And we were able to to grow there, to establish ourselves, to get known in the, the ecosystem and in the community so that when we did go independent, you know, we had an, an audience that we could take with us and we were able to build a sustainable business model. But you can see from the jump, I mean, we we intentionally built our business at breaking points, not relying on YouTube at all. And so I think if you were starting a new channel right now, I don't think it would matter what you had to say or how good it was or whether you're doing, you know, groundbreaking on the ground reporting or any of that stuff. It's just not possible really to succeed. It's not what YouTube is about anymore. I mean, they've completely changed the whole ethos and what that product is about. Now it's basically just another place to get corporate media. If you're just coming in for the first time and you aren't seeking out ind new independent voices, what used to be great about it is that you would get surf things that you That's didn't right. know about yeah. that might be interesting, mm -hmm. that might be different. And so it really was more of a democratic system where you could start from the ground. And if you, it was like an actual kind of meritocracy. If you had something to say and people responded yeah. to it, then you were going to do okay. It's just not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. And, you know, it sucks. So anyway, uh, the way around that, well, first of all, you know, I rarely do this, but yeah, everybody sh like the videos, um, subscribe, yeah. click the notification bell, do all the basics, do all that stuff, but also share it, like send it to your mm -hmm. uncle, send, you know, whatever, send it to your cousin. Yeah. And because there's no, you can't make up for that difference of how much the algorithm used to just, if you do well, you're going to do even better and we're going to serve it to more people. Now they don't do that. So you can't make up for that difference, but you got to at least try. And like you said, the whole point of Crystal Kyle and Friends and the way we structured this from the beginning uh, was we're not only we're not dependent on YouTube, we're not even taking any ad money at all. Right. So, you know, sometimes it actually drives me a little crazy because when I'm uploading a clip from like a little teaser clip from the Crystal Kyle and Friends episode. It'll be a topic that I know is actually gonna do pretty well compared yeah. to a lot of my other videos. Mm -hmm. And there I am, bullheaded, clicking off on monetization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then of course, that's the one video of the week that gets 250,000 <laughs> views. And I'm like, God damn it, I'm too principled, <laughs> you know? But I mean, look, it is what it is. So anyway, our answer to that has been relying on you guys, $5 a month, and you get the video version of the show, you get it a day early, and it makes it so that we have zero advertisers for this show. We don't read any ads. We don't run any ads. We're totally free and independent, yep. and we're totally you know, reliant on your small-dollar donations for you guys to get the newsletter and, and watch the show a day early. So uh, we love and support everybody who looks out for us and donates to the show. It means the world to us. And everybody else who listens to the free version, you're just okay. <laughs> If you're going to stick with our free version, at least send Jordan the five bucks a month that he's asking for. Support him. Support somebody. Because um, this ecosystem really matters, and it's important. We saw how critical it was in 2020, the way that once the big guys turned on Bernie, oh. once they just threw in for Joe, it was all over. I mean, in it, it literally in a day.
that's actually the single greatest point anybody's made in this entire discussion. <laughs> it is. Thank you, sir. No, but it is because that you're right. As soon as they decided, they flipped on a dime. That's the guy. He's our only option. And in it a was day, it was over. Crazy Bernie, socialist, insane, unelectable, defended Cuba, likes Venezuela, nonsense. And Joe's the only one who's electable. Joe's the only one. And what you saw is polls went like this. Whoopsies. Yeah. In a day. Yeah. In a day. Now so imagine if you we have ever had a prayer of combating that even a little bit. We have to support the people who are going to have an independent voice. Imagine you had an equally bullshit. powerful new media to counter that at the time. Yeah. As opposed to us not being as powerful. We might be actually about to get paid leave and some other decent, <laughs> halfway decent policies versus like the stick of chewing gum that Joe Biden is securing for the American people right now. My, I have to say, my tweet was one of the greatest tweets of all time. What was not it? Just, R- not just all the people. Uh, I forgot it. No, it was uh, something along the lines of the Democratic bill is now a subscription to Reader's Digest, melted candy corn from 2006. <laughs> And an expired coupon for Denny's. Yeah. That's what the reconciliation <laughs> bill has now become. Yes, that is way too close to just the facts. It's not much of a joke. It's almost real. All right, guys, we love you. We'll see you soon. See you next week.